Okay, I'm going to be reading from James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 this morning. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the, say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of whom to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Please take your seats. Thank you, Rebecca. Well, good morning. My name is Jim. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, but just to be clear, even though my official formal first name is James, I'm not the one that wrote this book. Glad we got that cleared up. See, um, the author is James, the brother of Jesus. In fact, if you pronounced his name in the language he spoke of in Greek, it's uh, Jacobus. Comes from Jacob. Uh, <clears throat> now, so don't confuse the two of us. He, this James, the writer, knew Jesus personally uh, from growing up. And James was inspired to put into writing the words of the Holy Spirit that, that were given to him, which is how we got this book. Me, on the other hand, I'm still trying to understand what all this means. So I'm going to try to offer a little of that this morning, and hope, uh, hopefully you'll find this uh, helpful. But before I get into it, first, uh, two caveats I want to give before we, uh, before we dig into the test. First... When James and the Bible talk about the poor, they are not speaking about anyone in the American middle class. Virtually all of us qualify as what the Bible calls the rich. Now, we may consider ourselves to be, to be poor, but we have food and money enough for tomorrow and well into this next week. We have homes that protect us from the weather and from thieves and criminals. We have access to cheap transportation, healthcare, education, the internet, cell phones, 
We have 911, we have electrical power, we have clean water, and we have clothing choices, and a safe food supply, and paved roads. We don't see ourselves as rich because we, we take all this for granted. Now, any one of us can compare ourselves, our status, our economic status, with somebody that's lower down than we are, but the poor cannot. They're at the bottom. Everybody they compare themselves to has more. The poor of the Bible, and a lot, of, and the poor in a lot of areas still today, um, only have the clothes that they are wearing. When it comes to food, they don't have enough food for today, even if they're working full time. And they live and sleep on the ground, on the dirt, out in the open in lots of cases. They would be among the homeless in this, in this culture. Now I say this not because I want us to feel guilty about what we have. On the contrary, we need to be thankful that the Lord has allowed us to have this wealth and seek how he wants us to use that wealth for his glory. But to be clear, when James speaks to the rich, he's talking to virtually everyone here today. Second caveat is that the teaching of the book of James can be difficult to listen to. Now James starts out with teaching how to live with the bad things that happen to us, bad circumstances, for example. Now, I like the saying I've heard, life is hard, but God is good. Try not to get the two confused. I think that sums up a lot of what James is talking about in the first chapter. But then James goes, does not stop there. He then goes after us a little bit more personally. He confronts our anger, and he, then how we use our tongue. Today, how we might show favoritism, etc. on through the rest of the book. You know, I mean, my life has enough trouble that are caused by others. Now you're harassing me personally? You know, is God picking on me? The critical thing to understand, especially when we read the book of James, is that the Lord is doing this because he loves us. He is disciplining us as his children, uh, as pointed out in the book of Hebrews. Now, I mean, you know this. I mean, if you tell your child um, you, they cannot play out in the street, it's because you love them and you don't want them to get hit by a car. If you really didn't care for them or if you hated them, you wouldn't care what they do or where they did it as long as they didn't bother you. See, the Lord loves us and actively pursues us. This is why we can be thankful when life gets tough because that is evidence that the Lord is wants to draw us near to him. This is also why we can take great comfort when we read the Bible and we find ourselves lacking, convicted, in sin, inadequate. This is how the Holy Spirit is coaxing us into closer relationship with him. Studying the book of James should be difficult and it should at times be uncomfortable, sometimes very uncomfortable, but that's a good thing. I would be very concerned if anyone here could sit under the teaching of the Bible in general, be unaffected, unmoved, or indifferent to what it says. If that is true of anyone here today, then something or someone other than Jesus has your affections. All right, so let's 
Let me pray for us, and we'll get into this passage. Father, we thank you that you love us and pursue us. We ask now as we look into this passage that you would open our eyes that we might behold wondrous things that you have for us here. Speak to us, encourage us, and show us more of yourself. In Christ's name, amen. So now we're in a sermon series in the book of James, and our series is titled, It's Not About You. I, I love that expression. It just Somehow that just captures so much of life. It's not about you. Now this week, this section is, it's not about you, it's about the merciful lawgiver. When we look at what James reveals about God, who God is, and why that matters, and how it works for us in our lives. That's what I want to do today. This is also a general letter. It was meant to be distributed to lots of churches in general. James is not, as far as I know in this letter, he did not pick out a particular church and write to correct a particular thing that he saw, as we see with the, the, the letters of Paul, for example. <clears throat> so he does speak a bit more generally about things, and that's, that's the tone, especially the tone here. Now, the situation in churches that James is speaking to <clears throat> excuse me, is favoritism. We see that in verse 1. He uses a simple and understandable example. Believers are coming into a room together uh, for teaching and worship, much like we all did here this morning. However, those hosting the meeting are showing partiality or favoritism to the guests based on appearances, just what they could see. Favoritism or partiality, as used here, <clears throat> means to respect or treat someone based on position, rank, popularity, or even human circumstances. Favoritism is also used other places in the scripture to describe or confront um, uh, prejudice or discrimination based on ethnicity. We see this explained in the following verses. An individual is given the worst seat in the gathering based on the clothes that they wear. The rich are, are who wore good clothes, in fact, just a ring, um, they were favored with the best seats. The poor in filthy clothes were not worthy of the best seats in the house. Now this was a, a common practice in the culture of that time. So perhaps, at least in the church, this seemed to be normal um, to do this when they came and gathered, very possibly. The problem that James identifies with this practice is that the church is becoming judges with evil thoughts. That's verse 4. That's the whole, that's the point of his, point of this section. They are discriminating against the poor believer and dishonoring him. Verse 6. The cultural practice in this case is the exact opposite of how the Lord's kingdom is to operate. In addition, the church was implicitly claiming God's own right to stand in judgment over other people. God is a merciful judge, and these believers were taking on that role of judge and not being merciful to the poor. In this instance, the church was not becoming like the God they worship. They were conforming instead to the culture around them. 
Now, judging is not always bad. There's other places in the New Testament where the church is actually asked to judge based on behavior that people do. This is based on just appearance. Now, the Lord is called, we see in verse 5, the Lord is called or elected the poor to be in his kingdom. James is not saying that all the poor everywhere are automatically believers. That's not his point. He's focused on the poor that are coming into the worship gathering of their own free will. Now, these poor that come in, they're either believers or individuals interested in the faith. God was at work of their hearts, most likely because of their dire circumstances, and they had a, and gave them a hunger to know Jesus. The poor came seeking a closer connection to God the Father, and the church was missing the opportunity to show mercy to them. What these poor visitors got instead of mercy was judgment. Now, in the culture of that day, the rich typically oppressed the poor by using their wealth and their influence. And this was often done in the courts of law. The culture at that time, very common belief was that God favored the rich and he cursed the poor. The gods, or even fate, was giving the rich what they deserve, and he was also, and fate was also giving the poor what they deserved. Now, we see this attitude today. I mean, I know, I know for me, it's real obvious, real, in, real easy when I see um, somebody wealthy, see a celebrity, or you know, or see somebody that's that's got a lot to think. Well, they earned that; they deserve it; they work for it. And likewise, it's real easy when you see the poor guy on the street with a cardboard sign to think, well, <clears throat> they're probably not working. They probably don't want to work. They're lazy. See, <clears throat> it's, it's still common today. The, <clears throat> the truth behind all that is that God made the rich and God made the poor. The Bible teaches that. Both believers... <clears throat> both poor and rich as believers have responsibility to manage what God has done for them. Both are to figure out how to live in community together. The Bible has many passages that speak how those who with more resources, particularly in the church, should help the poor. <clears throat> now we notice too this, this particular church gathering that, that James is describing also had rich believers in attendance. So for the believers in the gathering to follow a cultural norm and to favor the rich over the poor means that the church was becoming oppressors, not just the rest of the culture. See, they were just following along with what the general culture did. So this raises two problems that I can see. First, the rich that got the good seats were also believers, how did they view their poor brothers in Christ? What were they thinking? Um, did the wealthy believe they deserved the best seats? Did they not know that their acceptance of special favors was an embarrassment to the gospel? Did they not understand that there were, they were no more deserving of the best seats in favor or, or deserving of favor than their poor brethren? What was their thinking? And the second problem is, James is commenting on a practice that was done openly 
in the gathering. The rest of the church could see this happening. Right in front of them. Literally, in the front seats. There had to be tacit approval or tolerance of this practice. The implication, or this implication is not the host, just the host, or the leaders, or the rich, but the entire community. Did not anyone in the community know that this was wrong? Ah, thank you, Jeff. <clears throat> Didn't anybody know this was wrong? Did somebody know it was wrong, but they, <clears throat> they wouldn't speak up? See, do not the actions of some in a community, if not confronted, become the normal accepted behavior for everybody else? This is how these sorts of attitudes spread, because they're not confronted. I believe this is why James addresses all the community when he says, you all, plural, have become judges, verse 4. He's making a comment on the identity of the of the of the um, community. Now, we really don't know what the believers, quote, evil thoughts were. It's, it's not explained. So we can only hope that the churches begin to question themselves after reading this letter. James does address, uses the phrase being polluted by the world in the last verse of chapter 1. So it follows that the favoritism here example uh, it shows how a believer or church can become polluted through, in this case, favoritism. Now, James also uses the word blasphemy in describing what the rich can do. Blasphemy is like the F-bomb in Christian circles. It's a really, really strong, strong term. So the rich in the culture around the church were blaspheming or speaking ill of or criticizing the name of Jesus. In the culture of that day, Jesus was considered a criminal. And his followers, which included many poor, they were considered of lower class. That's what was being said about them. Now, if that's being done on the outside, and the church is acting the same on the inside, when they gather, is this what the church is condoning? They're going along with this. So, James then shows what the standard for behavior from the Bible is. Verse 8. He uses the term royal law. We are to love our neighbors as ourselves. Moses said this. Jesus said this. It summarizes the Ten Commandments. It's considered the golden rule uh, today. This is how the kingdom operates. This is like this is, all, this is like the sum of all traffic laws for how we drive. That is the requirement for treating others. Favoritism, however, is certainly not loving one's neighbors as oneself. Favoritism is not loving one's neighbor at all. James then shows how favoritism not only breaks this rule, verse 9, it breaks every rule, verse 10. This is because any single violation of the rules dishonors the one who gave the rule. God is one. There are many laws, but one lawgiver. And this lawgiver takes it personally. 
As his creation, we are to honor him in all that we do. This means he's just as concerned that we control our tongues as he is concerned that we treat the poor in the same way we treat the rich. It's just as important to him that we don't murder as it is that we don't commit adultery. Verse 11, the royal law is about what gives honor and respect and glory to him. It's not about us keeping the rules. It's about knowing and loving the merciful lawgiver. Now, for example, 1 John 4.10, if we don't love other believers that we can see, we cannot love the God whom we cannot see. See the connection? Loving others is how we know and love Jesus. The law just shows us what it looks like. It's not about you. It's not about your good deeds. It's about the merciful lawgiver. Now, there is a danger about this royal law, and that danger is us. We can pervert its purpose and use it to feel good about ourselves. Uh, we think we're serving God, but we're actually honoring ourselves. Now, this may be what James is saying in verse 8, where it reads, if you keep the royal law. See, there's, it's a very, there's a very, he's, 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 we think he's playing off a very similar instruction that Jesus gave to a rich young man in Mark chapter 10. Um, let's say, for example, a person manages to follow most of what the Bible teaches. I go to church, I give money, I'm faithful to my spouse, I work hard at my job, I pay my taxes, I obey the laws, well, most of them. I watch my tongue, I avoid pornography, I treat others equally, but I still struggle with something. Let's say that struggle is anger or envy or even lust. Well, for those things, we're not loving our neighbor when we're angry with them. We're not loving them when we're envious of them or when we lust over them. James says that this law James says of this law, if you fail at any one thing, you fail at everything. Check out verse 26 in chapter 1. Check out when Jesus spoke to the rich young man in Mark chapter 10. And check out what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians chapter 3. When we fail at one thing, we actually end up deceiving ourselves because you know, we might think we're doing fine, but we, we make the mistake of thinking our efforts are good enough and that they will please God. It's, it is a deception. That's the danger. So James then goes to what is, is called the law that gives freedom. See that in verse 12? Now this is generally understood as the ethical requirements of the Old Testament law as expanded, taught, and fulfilled by Jesus. Jesus fulfilled all that the law required. Did every bit of it. Something that we could never do. This fulfillment by Christ is by his righteousness, which is given to us through our belief in the cross and the resurrection of Christ. We have therefore been set free from the penalty of what the Apostle Paul calls the law of sin and death. We are no longer to keep the rules to escape death and, and punishment, which 
It's impossible to keep them all anyway. We are free. This freedom also means we are now free to forgive, to show mercy, to give money, to serve others, lots of things, out of gratitude to Jesus rather than payment for sins. Loving others as ourselves has become the liturgy by which we worship God. We are free to enjoy love, we are free to enjoy, free to love, and free to know our Creator through loving others. Now, we need mercy, all of us do. We can't keep the rules that the Bible leaves out, at least all of them. Uh, <clears throat> we may keep most of the rules in our behavior, but, when, but then fail, often miserably, in our inward thoughts and motives. James has shown that, that visible wrong behavior is sourced in hidden wrong motives. That's the point in verse 4. It is our inward thoughts, attitudes, motivations, feelings, and urges that can be the source of wrong behavior. Regardless of how well we keep the rules, we are still broken. Now the gospel is the expression of the mercy of God towards us. Jesus lived a life of complete obedience to the law or rules of the Bible. He did so with the right motivation or heart. For this he was killed. He rose again from the dead to show that he was perfect, wrongly killed for the sins he did not commit. And since he was perfect, he could take on the consequence of our failures and absorb or pay for them. Our sins, our errors, failures, mistakes, and evil were effectively covered, paid for, and absolved in his death. He got our penalty. We got his goodness. This is really good news. Right? It's really good news. Yeah. This is also known as mercy. And mercy is who God is. Not just something that he does, it's who he is. So James is asking this question, effectively. If the Lord has shown mercy, the gospel, to the poor that are coming into the Sunday gathering, how can we then oppress them and not show mercy? The answer is that that doesn't make any sense. This is how the gospel works out in our lives and into those around us. We are loved without deserving it. Therefore, we can love others who don't deserve it. We receive forgiveness without deserving it. Therefore, we can forgive others. This is how we love others as ourselves. Now, in this next section, James adds this phrase, judgment without mercy is to one who has shown no mercy. We see that in verse 13. This is likely a reference to a couple of things. Jesus gave a sermon on this topic. Jesus also gave a parable on this topic. And what Jesus was teaching was, again, 
if you cannot forgive, God won't forgive you. It's also a reference to what we know as the great white throne of Judgment Day. Now on that day, Judgment Day, everyone who has ever lived, including believers in Jesus, will face Christ as the final judge sitting on his throne. That's going to be quite a thing. One place, billions of people, Christ on the throne. You're not going to be late. You're not going to be busy with someplace else. All of us are going to be there. We won't miss this. It is then that all the thoughts, actions, attitudes, and secrets of every person will be exposed. And if any have shown no mercy to others, God will not show them mercy. Now, the unbelieving person that cannot forgive or show mercy is the one who has not understood and accepted the forgiveness or mercy available in Jesus. With this judgment without mercy uh, statement, now it may appear that James is saying you must obey the royal law to be saved or escape this judgment. Uh, That's not the case because that would make James a legalist. And he's not. And we can see that even in what James says within his his book. James himself argues that the, the regeneration or new birth comes through God's action in his word. Verse 18 of chapter 1. Salvation comes through the implanted word, which must be received with meekness. Again, chapter 1, verse 21. And God gives grace to the repentant, chapter 4, verse 6. None of this is contrary to the justification by faith that we learn from the Apostle Paul's letter. Therefore, James is not a legalist, and therefore not advocating keeping the law to gain salvation or to avoid God's wrath. What James is saying about faith and deeds or actions will be touched on again next week because we'll get directly into that section. In short, if a person claims he has faith in Jesus, That faith will demonstrate itself in the person's deeds or behavior. And that behavior will also be exposed and judged on Judgment Day. The merciful judge will see this. James then adds right at the end, mercy triumphs over judgment, verse 13. Now, as I mentioned earlier, as believers, our sins will be evident but so will Christ in us, as evidenced by our actions. In particular, the merciful attitudes and actions of a believer will count as evidence in the presence of the merciful Christ in their life. And Christ's mercy will win over judgment, will triumph over judgment, judgment that we would otherwise completely deserve. So, Point is, we have been given mercy. His mercy, therefore, should be shown to believers among us, regardless of economic class. This is, again, the principle of that general, uh, genuine faith in Christ will show itself in action it is also what Luis spoke of last week. He said, genuine faith permeates everything, behavior, relationships, etc., The resulting spiritual life is visible, that which can be seen by others through our behavior. 
This includes personal acts of devotion and acts that promote the flourishing of others. Genuine faith both <coughs> genuine faith affects both our internal lives, our motives, desires, etc., and our external lives, like the use of the tongue and the separation of, from, from the world. In effect, as Luis pointed out, we as the people of God should be like that God. In this context, James is saying that favoritism, based on appearances, is evidence of false faith. In contrast, loving others as ourselves is showing genuine faith. Now I'm going to switch gears here. Um, we covered the passage. What I want to talk about is how, again, more in general, how we as Taproot try to encourage all of us to hear the word and to do what the do the word as it is taught. In other words, our belief and our actions. So, um, I'm going to speak a little bit about how we structure our time Sunday morning uh, through an illustration. Now, during the construction of this building uh, phase, I was, I was injured in both of my biceps. My arms hurt, you know, from lifting and moving things. I kept working. I, I kind of have a thing about that, so I just kept on going. My body then adjusted by compensating. It was switching the stress I got for, uh, that came from working to other muscles in my arm. Pretty soon those other muscles became injured as well. My arms hurt even more. And it, was, it became quite difficult to work, to do much of anything. My arms were broken, effectively. Well, I finally went to see a physical therapist about the pain. The therapist, they did some tests, located the injuries, massaged the muscles, gave me exercises to do every day, and that would help me heal and strengthen. Now, I went back to the therapist twice a week so they could monitor my progress and help me by rehearsing the exercises. <clears throat> the therapist wanted to make sure I was improving and that I was doing the exercises consistently and correctly. Now, I, I don't like doing exercises, but they wanted to make sure that yeah, you're doing it, and you're doing it at home. See, if I failed to do the work at home or did it improperly, I would never improve. And the sessions with the therapist would be useless, right? Well, this is kind of like our gathering on Sunday morning, our gathering today. We are here because we are broken. That's why we're here. Not all is well with us spiritually. Now, we structure our gatherings to promote our relationship with Jesus and, following that, our relationship with each other. This promotes spiritual healing and is good practice for how we are to flourish during the, the rest of the week. See, on Sunday morning, we open with worship through singing to one another. We exercise responding to the Lord verbally through our call to worship. We say... Speak, Lord, your servants hear, after the Bible is read. The pastor then explains what the Bible means with, with the sermon. 
We then give a time for individual self-examination and confession during the singing. We take communion, which is a visual and tactile experience meant to remind us of what Jesus did on the cross for our sins and our brokenness. We then meet during the week and in our home gatherings to further discuss and clarify what was being taught on Sunday. This is also a time that we use to confess to each other, confess sins to each other. Now, all this is done, again, as an exercise here with the expectation we do it at home. Now, after all, this morning we said, speak, Lord, your servants here. The question is, did we hear? Did we do as we say we would do? Now, the Lord kept his part of the bargain. When Rebecca read that scripture, God spoke. He kept up his end. Are we hearing it? Did we keep up our end of it? Now, if the message... <clears throat> if, the <clears throat> if the message from the Bible as taught by the speaker, is not understood, if I don't make it clear, or if that message is not allowed by us to confront the sins that are hurting us, then there will be no confession, no cleansing, no healing. The word may have been heard, but nothing was done. Follow me? We will have heard only, and the time this morning will be wasted. See, our time today is an exercise or a rehearsal for what we need to do individually each day. We need to ask God to speak during the week, right? Not just here. Ask God to speak during the week. <laughs> Read some of the Bible. Examine ourselves. Look at our motives. Look at why we do things. Confess sin that we find. And obey what he shows us. If we're only doing this on Sunday with our therapist, as it were, is it any wonder that we still struggle with the same sins over and over again? We're not, we're not, <clears throat> it's like leaning with my arms. If I'm not, <laughs> if I'm not doing therapy, they don't get any better. See, we want to be a people that act on the word, not just hear it only as James points out. We want to be a community that knows and demonstrates who God is through our actions. Is that us today? Are we showing others through our actions what our merciful God is like? So, Ben, you can go ahead and come up. <clears throat> I'm going to pray for us. We're going to do some singing. At that time, uh, parents, you're going to go pick up your kids. But I would encourage you again, as we sing, did the Lord speak to you in some way? This, this is a time during the singing to just privately review what, was, um, uh, what you heard and ask the Lord to illuminate. You know, is there some area in my life that, that, that I need to confess? You know, we'll take communion. Again, that's uh, just to remember and celebrate the death and resurrection of Christ. And then we'll go about our weeks. I'm going to pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us. We thank you that you draw us to yourselves. We thank you that you have done that this morning. 
And we just ask for the wisdom and courage to uh, respond to you in faith, to confess what, what needs to be confessed, and uh, seek to be, be your people as we, uh, as we live out the world this week. In Christ's name, amen.